for the first time, language was included uh, that not only called for phasing out certain forms of fossil fuels, but, but I think more importantly, called and urged nations to more rapidly deploy clean power generation technologies. And that's exactly what our industry is already doing. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. World leaders convened in Glasgow, Scotland earlier this month to kick off the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, six years after the Paris Agreement established a global framework to tackle climate change. Executives from EEI member companies joined the U.S. delegation and environmental leaders to highlight the leadership of U.S. electric companies in reducing carbon emissions and the vital role that reliable, affordable, secure, and resilient clean energy plays in achieving net zero emissions across the U.S. economy. Today, EEI's Managing Director of Clean Energy and Environmental Policy, Eric Holdsworth, is joining us to talk about COP26, our member company's participation in the events, the agreement world leaders struck to fight climate change, and more. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Brian. It's really a pleasure to be here and looking forward to our conversation today. So I'll note you were part of the EEI delegation that was at the COP meetings. How many COP meetings had you previously attended? I don't think this was your first. No, this was my 24th COP out of the 26 that have been held. So I've been to a few, one might say. Oh, that's great. So you certainly have a perspective here. So the COP meetings are something that typically are scheduled every year, but it did seem like this year there was particular urgency among participants. Did you have that sense and what might have been driving that urgency? Well, no, you're exactly right, Brian. Uh, and what was driving the urgency was, as you noted, uh, really six years ago, in the rhythm of the COP, really five years ago, Paris, uh, the Paris Agreement was adopted and that set out a five-year rhythm. And of course, with the pandemic, that sort of meeting this would have happened last year is happening this year. This was the, really the first time that the five-year cycle of every nation having to submit a new plan, a new more aggressive reduction plan to address climate change uh, was happening in the, in the context of the, of, uh, this, of the COP process. And so this was a really important meeting to see if that would happen, what agreements nation would bring forward, how aggressive would those be, and would the process be able to continue to move forward? So I think that was really, there was a sense of urgency there. I think you saw that reflected in the final agreements, and that was the reason why. Uh, it was time to, uh, to really enshrine the Paris framework, uh, finish those rules, and really continue to move that process forward. Now at the COP meetings, who was part of the EEI delegation that was there? That's a great question. And we had our biggest delegation uh, in, in quite a while at the COP meetings. We had uh, over 11 different member companies, 25 different member company representatives came. And most importantly, we had three CEOs on the ground and, and a fourth that participated virtually. We had uh, the leaders from Edison International, Pedro Pizarro, uh, the head of Public Service uh, Enterprise Group, PSCG, Ralph Izzo, and the head of National Grid, John Pettigrew, which was a co-host. And then we had Pat Vincent Kalan, the head of PNM Resources, join us by video. Most companies, most industries didn't even send one CEO. 
we had three on the ground. That was noticed, and it was really exciting to be a part of a, of a big delegation that was really enthused and excited about being there and talking about the industry's message. So EEI has a long-standing history of attending the COP meetings, but this year it did seem like there might have been more involvement than ever with some of the official side events and some of the programming with the U.S. delegation and the different environmental groups that were there. Yeah, well, we really stepped up our game, and that's you know that's for a lot of different reasons, but a lot of that is because of the great work that EEI member companies and our CEOs are doing back home. Right, we've been on this clean energy transition uh, in the industry now for well over a decade, significantly reduced emissions, significantly changed our generation mix. And our CEOs were up on the hill and working with the administration throughout the year, uh, telling our story, letting people know uh, what could help advance that transition. As, as people looked at different policies, our, our support for trying to advance you know, clean energy programs and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, all of that being a part of the conversation, and I think stakeholders realizing that we're a key part of the solution and that we are showing up and not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. Now, suddenly people want us to be a part of that conversation and recognize that we are an important part. And so I think for that reason, that really helped us raise our profile. And as you said, we did an event at the U.S. Center, one of uh, only a few uh, that were allowed to do that. And uh we're able to do uh, some events in other pavilions where we've not been able to before. And I think that's in recognition of what the industry is doing and, and us getting out there and telling that story. Are there a few examples of the officials that you were engaging with on the panels and some of the environmental partners that you were working with for those side meetings? And also, we're saying side meetings like everybody knows what that means, but there's the formal meetings. But can you tell us a little bit about what those side meetings are? Yeah, sure. No, here I am, you know, someone who was actually in Glasgow and uh, not not recognizing not everybody was inside the hallway. So what we what EEI did was we held a series of events uh, in an area that was full of different pavilions, if you will, spaces that countries like the United States and other nations or that groups like business groups, several different business groups, other environmental groups had uh, rented, if you will, for the meetings as a place to hold events and to allow people to tell their story. So what was exciting for EEI is we were able to do an event at the U.S. Center. So this was uh, where the U.S. government was doing its programming, uh, where we had National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy join us for uh, opening keynote remarks. And then she came back and joined us for closing remarks. Uh, and we had a great panel at that event with our CEOs. So that was a, you know, a great event and certainly a lot of energy there and uh, really helping uh, not only the industry tell a story, but there was the National Climate Advisor talking about the importance of what EEI and its members are doing uh, to advancing, uh, addressing climate change. So that was huge. We were able to do an event with the World Wildlife Fund in their pavilion, which was actually at that time taken over by the America is All In group led by Michael Bloomberg and a number of cities and states and others that have committed to meeting the Paris goals and did some programming there. Uh, and uh, really had some exciting conversations about a lot of well, not only what the industry is doing, but the technologies that we're working on developing to get to the to get to net zero. There's a lot we can do with what we have now, but we talked about some of those future technologies and the steps we're taking now to develop those, as well as the role that clean electricity can play in addressing emissions from transportation uh, and in other sectors of the economy. And then a little bit about uh, also talking about how the bipartisan infrastructure bill can really help advance a lot of what's happening in the industry in its clean energy transition. And who was the key messenger or messengers for the Edison Electric Institute during some of these events? 
Well, for us, it was our CEOs. As I mentioned, it was the the heads of Edison International, Pedro Pizarro, uh, the head of PSEG, Ralph Izzo, the head of National Grid, John Pettigrew. And then for EEI, our uh, executive vice president, Brian Wolf, moderating these panels. And then being able to bring in people like the head of EPRI, Arshad Mansour, or bringing in the president of AES Clean Energy, Leo Moreno. And we could talk about what's happening not only domestically, but internationally with technology deployment and what challenges are developing countries facing that developed nations don't. How do you bridge those gaps and those differences, right? It's another key part of the story, even while uh, the U.S. electric industry is mostly a domestic focused industry. What we learn, uh, you know, can translate around the world. And of course, equally, we can learn from around the world. So these are really some exciting panels. We worked with GE onshore wind and, and talked a lot about what's going on there and what, what is GE seeing in the world of technology deployment. So some really exciting panels, uh, really a chance for us to cover a range of the issues we talked about. And then, you know, one thing we did do, Brian, was we did do an offsite event uh, where we spent a, a whole afternoon exploring the issue of the clean energy transition and making sure no one's left behind. And that's a lot of different communities. You know, it's communities where there are coal plants, it's communities where um, there are low income people, uh, communities that are impacted by pollution. So how do you make sure that you can make sure that this clean energy transition benefits everybody and has a broad reach? And there we had a great panel with some of our company chief sustainability officers. Uh, and then we had a chance to hear from some congressional officials uh, on a congressional perspective. Uh, and really, it's a great, really enriching afternoon, uh, recognizing there's a lot of work to be done, but a lot of good activity happening within the industry to at least try to reach out to communities and work with them uh, as we transition to make sure that everybody can benefit from that. So uh, really a wide range of topics. And we had, you know, officials from all over the all different uh, walks of, of life and agencies that we were able to interact with over there as well. And you had mentioned before a little bit about the initial Paris Agreement targets, but can you speak a bit about what the targets were for the electric power industry and how we've stacked up against those so far? Right. So that's a great question. And, and what's interesting, right, is so Paris, of course, and and really the, the new plans that were announced in the run up to and at Glasgow and for some nations that will hopefully be announced next year. Right. These are national goals. Right. So national commitments. So the U.S. comes and they announce their their uh, goal, their nationally determined contribution, as it's known in the, the jargon of the U.N., now, what transcends from each nation's goal and how they translate that down to their individual industries is what then becomes uh, the target for that industry, right? So for, our, for the U.S. power sector, uh, under, uh, under President Obama in the original Paris Agreement, we had submitted uh, an NDC of getting uh, U.S. emissions to 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025 economy-wide. And as a part of that, subsequent analysis laid out that uh, EPA's then proposed clean power plan uh, would get power sector emissions 30% below 2005 levels by 2030 and would be a large driver of the U.S. being able to meet that goal. Well, you know, of course, a lot of things happened between uh, then and now. Um, but on that, so that was 30% below 2005 levels by 2030 or 32% uh, to be exact. The power sector was 40% below 2005 levels in 2020. So we've already blown well past uh, the goals that would have been set for us under the original Paris Agreement. President Biden submitted a new 
a commitment, a new NDC or plan earlier this year that calls for economy-wide reductions of 52% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Uh, but they haven't uh, laid out any real additional details on exactly how they see that being achieved. So uh, I can't say as yet there's necessarily been a specific target assigned to the power sector uh, coming out of that. Um, and as I said, we've already made some pretty tremendous reductions and I'm certainly on track to continue down that pathway. So it sounds like programming-wise at a COP and discussion-wise, it wasn't just focused on the electric power sector. It really was looking at all avenues to reduce emissions in different sectors of the economy. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's so what, what happens at Paris, what happens at the COPs, as nations talk about climate change, you know, uh, some parts of the world focus mostly on the mitigation, right? The reduction of emissions and what are the nation's reduction goals and what's going to happen there. Other people focus on, you know, how will that be achieved and what about the role of market mechanisms and emissions trading and offsets? But of course, uh, the discussions also encompass adaptation and how do you help developing countries adapt to the impacts of climate change? They address issues of technology transfer and, and how can you help facilitate uh, and, and enhance technology transfers so that developing countries that don't have access right now maybe to any electricity can at least get access to clean electricity and help grow their economy. So it really encompasses a whole range of issues and all types of solutions from reducing emissions from uh, you know, how a nation might do that uh, to the role that forests can play and, and soil and, and sequestration activities that way. Uh, to the role of next generation technologies. And what was interesting really in coming out of Glasgow was for the first time, language was included uh, that not only called for phasing out certain forms of fossil fuels, but but I think more importantly, called and urged nations to more rapidly deploy clean power generation technologies. And that's exactly what our industry is already doing. So I think that was a pretty uh, clear signal, uh, but it, it is a much broader uh, it really just looks at the, the entirety of the issue of climate change. Uh, I could go on and on about the agenda topics, and we don't have time to, to cover all of them, in, in including the women, uh, the role of indigenous people, uh, including the role of non-market mechanisms, and you know, including research and, and systematic observation of climate change. It goes on and on, the suite uh, of what parties are really looking at to address the totality of not just reducing it, but adapting to it and, and being better able to understand what's happening and and prepare and maybe predict and also, again, try to reduce and avoid some of those consequences. And I know in the U.S., the transportation sector has been the largest emitting sector since about 2016. So during the conversations and meetings at COP, were there discussions about how to use the increasingly clean electricity to accelerate the electrification of the transportation sector? Well, you know, that's a, exactly, uh, and not only did, did EEI do an event on that where we had uh, Pedro Pizarro, the head of Edison International, and Arshad Mansour in a conversation with Brian Wolf on that, uh, but I mean, just most, most vividly right outside the entire pavilion zone where all of these events, where all this action energy was occurring, uh, was an electric, uh, an electric Formula One car, um, and so... There was, yeah, and, and of course, it wasn't just the EEI event. There were a, a lot of events going on highlighting and uh, highlighting the role that electrification can play in addressing transport emissions. I know there was an entire transport day uh, where they dedicated uh, that uh, in the UN as a theme day, much like there was an energy 
theme day and EEI did an event on that day talking about our clean energy technology work, uh, trying to develop those next generation technologies. But to your question, yeah, no, 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 no doubt about it. The role of transportation uh, and electrification and helping reduce emissions from vehicles, uh, really a, another part of that story that was going on uh, outside of the main negotiations, which themselves are, of course, much broader in focus and don't dwell on specific sectors. And to step back, just in general, what was it like to be in Glasgow? I know when you have heads of state, there's obviously going to be a lot of security, but I imagine with the COVID protocols, there just was a lot of complexity to getting everyone into the space this year. So no, thanks, Brian. That was actually, so if one of the takeaways to me from the COP that I was struck with was this kind of role of these side events that we were just talking about in this pavilion zone as really being a big driver of activity. I mean, I would say for three quarters of the conference, it felt like that was where all the energy was. It was not in the back negotiating rooms. Of course, ultimately, uh, for the meetings to be a success of what happened in the negotiating rooms had to uh, had to come forward, and, and it did. But so that was one takeaway. The other was a question you just raised. And to me, it was really kind of the scale of this operation, uh, which is really, you know, unprecedented even for COP. And of course, in the middle of a pandemic, to have a meeting with 25,000 attendees uh, in the restricted area alone quite an accomplishment. But so, I mean, the scale, the footprint, you know, the fact that it took you 20 to 30 minutes to get from one end to the other. Uh, The fact that, you know, the the daily testing routine that everybody going into this blue zone, as it was called, uh, had to go through, myself included, and, you know, having to show up with your your official badge uh, and your email that you from the Scottish National Health Service that you'd cleared your COVID test. I mean, just to get past the outer level of, of security to even get into actually go through security and eventually make it into the, into the um, facility, uh, just immense. The scale of people that came uh, was really kind of more, more akin to Paris, not quite as large as Paris. But then again, we were in a pandemic and people weren't exactly encouraged to show up. So I would just thought the scale of all of it was to me pretty uh, pretty mind-boggling. Uh, as and, and as someone who's been to a lot of cops and a lot of different places and all kinds of different circumstances, I would say on the positive side for all of that, I mean, as big and as large as it was, unlike probably the last big meeting that was sort of like that outside of Paris, which was Copenhagen, which uh, really ended in, in you know, um, that was just kind of a disaster from uh, getting people in and out. This uh, despite a lot of trepidation and concerns by many of us going in, I thought really worked uh, very well for for that kind of an event and to manage that number of people. Uh, I really thought it came off remarkably uh, well structured, you know, without a whole lot of problems, without a whole lot of hassle, uh, which really a tremendous credit to uh, I think the UK and the uh, UN organizers for making that happen. But that was really kind of one of the other things that really struck me about this whole the whole meeting. In, in addition to the outcome being. I think, pretty critical uh, milestone on the road uh, from Paris forward. And in addition to the event that you all did with U.S. National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy at the U.S. Center, were there other side meetings or events or briefings that you all participated in while there? Yeah, thanks, Brian. And, and, and yes, in addition to all the other activity that goes on outside of the Blue Zone, even within the Blue Zone, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on that erupts at a moment's notice. And we did in fact, uh, uh, Special Presidential Envoy Kerry was gracious enough to meet with CEOs that took the time to travel over there, and we were able to have several of our executives uh, meet with him in a closed session, uh, so that was certainly very special. We also had the opportunity to meet with 
Deputy Energy Secretary David Turk uh, and uh, Acting Assistant Secretary Kelly Spakes Bachman uh, and some other DOE officials. And that was exciting, uh, you know, given the passage of the bipartisan bill. And we were able to meet with um, David Hayes, who's on Gina McCarthy's team, and uh, share some of our thoughts with him on what the industry is doing and steps forward. Uh, you know, we were able to, uh, as I mentioned, even at the uh, at our event off campus, we were able to have a uh, uh, a nice panel with some of the congressional staff that came over. So, um, you know, and then individual companies were having all kinds of meetings themselves. And there's a lot of that that happens at, at a COP, things that you can't really plan that uh, just crop up and officials that you suddenly can have an opportunity to meet with. And I would just say the U.S. administration officials were uh, generally try to be pretty open to meeting with people when they could. They were, as you can imagine, were taxed running around talking to other countries and trying to get people on board with the agreement uh, in addition to, you know, meeting with other uh, other people. So, uh, but I think where they could, they were certainly generous with their time. And uh, I know the State Department team themselves in the middle of all the negotiations were gracious enough to have several outreaches with the uh, NGO community. So, um, yeah, those were some of the other things that uh, went on inside uh, the hallways and folks we had a chance to meet with. And all of this is great for going back home. And, and of course, there were the informal conversations where you ran into, um, you know, Energy Secretary Granholm in the hallway, where you ran into uh, the governor or the mayor or uh, the state official from your state in the hallway or at an event or at a panel you did with them. Um, so there were a lot of those conversations that went on too. And that's part of the art and benefit of, of the cop uh, coming over. It's, uh, it's, there's a lot you do, right? A lot of events that you go to, but then it's also the people you meet and the relationships you develop there and the quiet cup of coffee uh, that you couldn't have back home that you can over here. And uh, so anyhow, really important stuff. And it was really, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of those types of side meetings uh, are important to the process as well. And my last question might be a little unfair because I'm not sure you've even had a chance to unpack yet, but what comes next and when do you start planning for the next COP meeting? Well, um, of course, we're already thinking about COP27. Uh, so, you know, what comes next is COP27. I mean, for the process itself, there'll be some meetings in the summer. Those are important technical meetings. Uh, but the next big meeting is going to be in Egypt. Uh, it'll be held next November uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. And I think there you're going to see a lot of focus on uh, developing country issues, particularly funding for adaptation, funding for loss and damage, um, promised funding that the developed world is still uh, trying to pull together. I think you'll see a lot of focus on that as well as on countries that did not submit uh, NDCs or these new plans or didn't submit aggressive updated plans. I think you'll see a lot of focus on that as well. But we're already doing the planning for that, um, already trying to figure out you know, the what, the when, the where, already starting to do some initial thinking about what kind of programming. I know some of our member companies are themselves already thinking and starting to do some planning on Egypt. So I think we'll have a delegation there. I think we have an important story to tell in this process, Brian. Uh, and we're lucky that we have great leadership, uh, you know, at the head of EEI, you know, and in Brian and with our CEOs that come and, and our member companies that come and take the time. It, it really is a, sends an important signal. Uh, and then people listen to the message and that's, what we go there and tell it for. And it's an important part of the uh, solution to addressing climate change is what our industry can do. And there's some great opportunities out there. So I think Glasgow was a very encouraging meeting, I would say maybe as, as a look back for uh, the industry, because uh, with things like the bipartisan bill passing, 
with the focus on the importance of clean energy and a sense that the time is now, um, it really feels like things are coming together for our industry to be able to uh, really move forward, work with our federal partners uh, and others to help you know, develop those next generation technologies while we deploy what we can today and drive down emissions and, and decarbonize other parts of the economy. So it was really exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Eric, and for sharing some of your experiences from this year's COP meetings. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brian. I could obviously go on for hours about it, but uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, and again, uh, really want to thank the EEI members that came over as well for uh, uh, for their hard work as well. So thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.